0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's life sciences and healthcare podcast. I have another highly anticipated episode for you, and this is another one where I decided to stay completely silent and just follow the conversation. Imogen Ireland and Jason Law are talking about how artificial intelligence is being used in drug discovery and, in particular, some of the possible legal issues that result from this usage. I really enjoy to follow the conversation. I'm pretty sure that you'll have the same experience that I had. But as always, I'm trying to keep the entry short since we're going to each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk The Cure.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Lohr, a partner in the San Francisco office of Hogan Levels. I primarily deal with patents and intellectual property in the tech and medical device spaces. These days, The vast majority of my work involves machine learning, including hardware, software, and application-level technology for cutting-edge Silicon Valley and West Coast companies.
2: And I'm Imogen Ireland, a senior associate in the London office of Hogan Levels. I specialize in patents in the life sciences sector, and more recently, I've been focusing on the impact of AI on innovation in this area.
1: On this episode of Talking the Cure, we'll be discussing how artificial intelligence is being used in drug discovery, and in particular, some of the possible legal issues that result from this usage. We'll be focusing on intellectual property law issues, but we'll also touch on some contractual issues that will come into play when we think about how AI is being developed and used across different companies.
2: That's right. And this podcast is a podcast in two halves because in the first half, we're going to explore some interesting questions to do with whether or not patent law is set up to deal with innovations developed by AI. And in the second half of the podcast, we'll do a practical assessment of the potential legal issues stemming from the way in which AI is being used today. And in the first half, it might sound like we're considering some seriously hypothetical hypotheticals, but in testing the law in this way, we get a glimpse of some of the present day legal issues that we need to start thinking about now. We're, of course, going to finish the podcast by having a think about these legal issues.
1: And as you've probably guessed, where relevant, we'll be comparing and contrasting the approaches in the US and the UK, and in some cases elsewhere. Now, we know our listeners have a broad range of experiences, so we're going to start with the basics. What is AI and how is it being used in drug
2: discovery? Indeed, we are. Jason, what do we mean when we say AI? Because there's a lot of terminology associated with the technology, isn't there?
1: Certainly. And, you know, there's really no universally agreed definition of AI. Most definitions refer to the ability of machines and systems to acquire and apply knowledge and exhibit so-called intelligent behavior. Now obviously the mechanics of this process are vastly different depending on the era in which you're operating and historical use of the term would have been applied to relatively simple computing. For the purpose of the themes we're discussing today, however, I think we can limit ourselves to data-driven machine learning. Now machine learning in general refers to models and networks that can be trained and optimized using relevant training data. The vast amount of data that's collected these days in every sphere of life has contributed to and in part driven the development of this technology. Machine learning can be used to identify or infer patterns of the data and use this information to make statements about that data. Now, obviously, there are many ways to do this, and of particular interest are artificial neural networks, which are superficially analogous to networks of nerve cells in the human brain. Now, artificial neural networks are used for deep learning, and we say deep because there are many hidden layers of calculations and algorithms in these networks, which are not visible to the operator, and that can also hinder records being formed of the machine reasoning process. This learning involves the machine being able to determine whether its reasoning has led to a correct result. In many cases, the machine is able to do this part of the learning without human input or feedback. Now, the development of AI at present generally requires human responsibility for the design, building, data supply, and in some cases, training and organization of that AI. In addition to the technical know-how, there's an increasing emphasis on other aspects of the AI, such as ethical design, data quality, and the identification and elimination of systemic sources of bias. As I think we'll see, increased transparency and scrutiny of outcomes are important in addressing these issues, but there are sizable technical hurdles to increasing the transparency of these essentially hidden layers. And I think this is causing significant problems, this black box effect, particularly for those in the life sciences area.
2: All of that sounds really um, topical to what we're about to discuss, because the AIs being developed for use in drug discovery are really more advanced than some people might think. Now, Jason has given us the sort of overview of what we mean when we talk about AI. If we move that now to drug discovery, in a nutshell, machine learning is being used to learn from public and proprietary resources to identify and plan the synthesis of new molecules or known molecules for new uses. When we talk about public and proprietary resources, these could include scientific literature, clinical trials, compound libraries. So using machine learning... AIs are able to analyse and learn from vast amounts of data to generate their own approaches to drug design. Drilling down into the detail a bit, many of our listeners are going to be familiar with the various stages of drug design. The initial design phase comprises a number of tasks, such as target assessment, screening or optimization. Now, what's been reported here are AI applications focused on particular tasks or a subset of tasks. What traditionally might require a team of scientists could, in theory, be done with a series of AI applications. An overall result is that AI is promising to cut the time and costs of generating a hit to candidate from around five years to 1.5 or less. It's also really worth mentioning at this stage that two of the other big advantages often touted with AI are that it will One, improve the success rate of generating a hit to candidate, and two, save billions of pounds, not only because it will reduce the time and investment of the initial design phase, but also because it's promising to produce drugs that actually work.
1: Yeah, and we're actually already seeing a number of headlines where AI is producing significant results. Many of our listeners have seen in the news that AI is being developed to search for solutions for the treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Now what I think is particularly interesting are the different tie-ups between pharma and tech companies as a result of this trend for using AI. These advances made by these and other startup companies are certainly garnering a lot of interest from big pharma. And particularly in the last year, a number of collaborations between startup and big pharma have been announced. One reason for this is that companies wanting to take advantage of these opportunities offered by AI may not have those in-house resources, such that they're having to seek expertise from companies working at the forefront of this technology. But we're also seeing the rise of startups, and specifically companies with significant computer science expertise. Although small, these companies are looking to bring as much of the R&D process in-house as possible. Now, this might not seem like such an impossible idea if, as touted, AI can condense the resources and costs required for drug design. We're going to come back to these different models for development of AI resources, because unsurprisingly, this can have an impact on the associated IP.
2: Right. So that's a bit of an overview for listeners. What we're going to do now is explore a couple of issues that arise as a possible result of using AI. And we're going to start with AI inventors as a topic because the question is about whether or not you can get a patent for an invention derived by AI. So before we can look at the patent itself, we have to ask, is one even obtainable? And there have been some recent developments on this, which we're going to look at. But first, I'd like to look at the current legal framework. At the highest level, if you're applying for a patent, you need to be able to say who the inventor is. And at least in the EPO and UK, and I think it's the same in in the States, Jason, the law sets out who can be an inventor and therefore listed in the application. Now, as we're going to find out, if you can't meet the criteria for an inventor, then it looks like your application for a patent is going to be rejected. So it's really important that we understand what an inventor is under patent law. In the UK, the inventor is said to be the actual divisor of the invention. According to case law, there are two requirements underlying this concept. Firstly, they must be a natural person. To be clear, that means not a company or a computer. Secondly, they must have contributed to the inventive concept. Jason, how does that compare to the US?
1: Yeah, we have similar requests here in the U.S. In particular, the inventor as currently defined must be a natural person. This is potentially a problem when we think about the idea of an AI autonomously inventing something, because AI simply does not meet that basic criterion.
2: Right, and this has been recently tested in patent offices across the world, hasn't it?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, In 2018 and 2019, an applicant, in this case Dr. Thaler, filed parallel patent applications in the U.S., European, and U.K. patent offices. Now, where an applicant might ordinarily complete the details of the inventor, it was instead explained that an inventor was an AI machine called DABUS, which is in short for the device for the autonomous bootstrapping of unified sentience. Now, DABUS was described as a type of connectionist artificial intelligence. It was also said that DABUS had identified the novelty of its own idea before a natural person did, and therefore the machine should be recognized as the inventor. Now, in their decisions, all three of these offices refused the applications, with the primary reason being that Davis was a machine, whereas the legal frameworks that are applied require the inventor to be a natural person or human. Now, what's particularly interesting about these decisions is that until they were given, there was little guidance or debate, in fact, that addressed the inventorship inventions made using artificial intelligence in the US, UK, or the Europe as a whole.
2: Right, but the story doesn't end there, because Dr. Thaler appealed the EPO and UK decisions. And the EPO decision is pending, but um, not so long ago now, the UK High Court gave its judgment, rejecting the appeal. In other words, Dr. Thaler is yet to succeed, and we're still left with the current law requirement. You need a human inventor. Pausing there, I I just want to reflect on something the UK IPO said in its concluding remarks of its decision, which was that, and I quote, AI machines are likely to become more prevalent in the future. And although the present system did not cater for such inventions because the technology was simply not around at the time the legislation was being drafted. There is, the UK IPO continued, a legitimate question as to how or whether the patent system should handle such inventions because times have changed and technology has moved on. So they seem to be recognising that the system ought to be looked at, but it's a really tricky question, I think.
1: It is. And, you know, it's one that we really don't have time to answer today, but it's something that is being looked at by bodies worldwide, such as the International Association for the Protection of IP.
2: And the UK IPO recently called for views on this topic, but we're still left with the practical matter of being able to obtain a patent. If an invention is discovered by an AI, then under the current legal frameworks, it's looking like it's going to be difficult to obtain a patent. Now, some might see the Dabu example, and I'm realizing I'm saying this differently to Jason, <laughs> Dabus <laughs> example. <laughs> For some reason, I give it a French accent, who knows, it's the spelling. But the Dabut or Dabu example as a futuristic model, um, in other words, it's exemplifying the use of AI that is, as yet, not widespread in innovation. I think we can argue that. Because the state of the art uh, still requires significant human input, but therein lies the issue. To what extent is the human's input enough to warrant the title of inventor? So if we look at how AI is being used in drug discovery, applications using machine learning can select potential drug candidates from hundreds of options. In this scenario, it could still be possible to identify a human inventor because a human is still required to take the AI's output and apply further work to show that the candidate is in fact an invention. However, with AI advancing, it's not unimaginable that the human's role will be reduced. And this could be problematic. For example, in the UK, the actual divisor must not only be human, but must have also contributed to the inventive concept.
1: Right. And we have a very similar requirement here in the US.
2: Okay, so that's really interesting, because if we think about our scenario where the human is merely testing or verifying what the AI has selected, there could well be a question about whether or not the human has made enough of a contribution to the inventive concept in order to meet the criteria for inventorship.
1: Yeah, and if we apply, I'm going to use your your French pronunciation, because that that sounds so much (laughs) more elegant. If we apply the Daboo decisions, then in that scenario, neither the human nor the AI will be able to obtain the resulting patent this could result in non-patentable inventions or even non-inventions.
2: Okay. So, we began this topic uh, by thinking about what felt like quite a future issue, I'd say, that of the autonomous AI inventor. And many people would say that we're not there, there yet with the technology, but we've finished looking at this other part of the inventorship test. Um, I'm going to call it uh, the actual divisor requirement. Um, And and that could have a bearing, I think, on inventions being derived with the help of AI. So I don't think this issue is simply one of theoretical or academic interest, but something that should be thought about now. What do you reckon, Jason?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, So what we're going to do is we're actually going to come back to the issue of inventors when we go to the practical takeaways part of this podcast. And that's because the entitlement to a patent derives from the inventor. So in other words, an inventor or their successors entitled can own a patent or the company if that inventor is an employee of a company who owns the patent. But to get to that point, you need to know who the inventor is or who has satisfied that criterion.
2: Okay, cool. So we're going to look at another aspect of patentability. We're going to put the inventorship point to one side, come back to it in the second half. Now, this other aspect of patentability, um, I'm going to just label for ease inventiveness. Broadly put, across many patent regimes, in order to obtain a patent for an invention, you need to be able to show that at the time or the priority date, it is a new and inventive idea. Now, we're going to come back to what the priority date is uh, a bit later. So new means that there's nothing like it in the prior art. It's the second part of the test that we're focusing on inventiveness and the rationale behind this limit patentability is to prevent someone from being able to obtain a patent for an invention that is so close to the prior art that someone in the relevant technological field would have eventually made it using obvious means or taking obvious steps. In some jurisdictions, this requirement is referred to as obviousness. In other words, the invention must not be obvious to a person skilled in the art. Different jurisdictions have developed case law on exactly how this requirement should be assessed. Um, What's a test in the US, Jason?
1: So we have a somewhat similar test here. It's a two-part test that requires both novelty and non-obviousness.
2: Okay. So I, I think it's worth just briefly detouring. This assessment involves a sort of historical exercise because, as you've been hearing, obviousness is assessed at the priority date. Generally speaking, this date is when the idea for the invention is first filed at a patent office. So when a patent office or court is looking at whether or not an invention is obvious, they're really asking, was this invention obvious at the time the idea for it was first filed? The priority date. Accordingly, when they examine this question from the point of view of the notional skilled person, they're actually thinking about it from the perspective of a skilled person having the characteristics or qualifications that were typical in the technological field at the priority date. And that includes assessing what sort of common general knowledge they would have had access to in the technological field, the priority date. So what you'll be hearing is that central to the obviousness assessment is this idea of the notional person having ordinary skill in the art. And in order to assess whether an invention is obvious or not, the deciding body, a patent office or a court, for example, must step into the shoes of this person skilled in the art and think about what would have been obvious for them to do, bearing in mind his or her common general knowledge in the field at the time. Now, just as an aside, uh, we actually call this a legal fiction because the skilled person is not real, but really a tool through which we can assess the obviousness of a patent. So um, I think we should take an example that many of our listeners will be familiar with. A pharmaceutical company files a patent for a drug, a compound, say. And in order to assess whether or not that compound was obvious compared to the state of the art at the priority date, The patent office might look at the invention through the eyes of ah, a biochemist and the patent office would think about the typical qualifications and experience that biochemist would have had at the priority date. So, for example, a master's in biochemistry and or a couple of years working for a pharmaceutical company and or experience with a particular group of compounds that were already known at the time our pharmaceutical company comes along to file their patent for the invention. Now, the patent office is going to think about the sort of literature or conferences that that skilled person here, a chemist, would have had access to or attended, and possibly also think about the typical methods of work for developing related compounds. And once they have that picture of the skilled person, the office might then effectively step into their shoes and think about whether having all those things in mind that make up that skilled person, it would have been obvious to them to develop the compound for which a patent is sought. And it can be the case that a deciding body looks at the compounds that were already known and thinks about the prejudices that the ordinary skilled person may have had or the limitations to the typical work methods available at the priority date, and come to the conclusion that the invention for which a patent is sought is not obvious, i.e. it passes this limb at the patentability test.
1: Now, you've referred to a person a lot in this discussion.
2: <laughs> That's true, I have.
1: And we're talking about a human here again, aren't we?
2: Absolutely, we are. <laughs> I think you can see where this is going, Jason, can't you? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So plainly, we need to think about how that assessment might go where AI is used, because AI is going to significantly impact the way humans operate. Again, we're going to look at the two scenarios we considered earlier in this podcast. The first being where AI is used as a tool to assist the human, and the second being where AI has autonomously invented something on its own. Now applying the first scenario to drug discovery. AI could be used across various applications in the R&D process. So as Imogen explained earlier, it might be used to comb information that could be obtained from hundreds of thousands of public resources compare that to many, many known compounds in order to generate new ideas about how those compounds could be used. Now I'm simplifying, of course, but let's assume that out of that process, there are five compounds as a result that are essentially recommended by the AI for addressing a particular ailment or disease. Now it's quite likely that the human would need to take those compounds on for further testing, perhaps to understand more about them or even to test that they actually work. So that's an example of AI being used as a tool to assist the human. It might be a core part of the inventive process, but the human remains key to that process. Now, let's imagine that of the five patents that recommended, our company, let's call it AI Assist, decides to patent one of those, and as before, it needs to satisfy the obviousness test among others. Now, Imogen's explained how the patent office might approach that exercise by building up a picture of the notional skilled person in the art. This time, there's a legitimate question about whether or not our notional skilled person would have also had access to the AI tools that helped AI Assist come up with their invention. Now you can see how this makes all the difference because the AI tools used by AI Assist have potentially condensed that work that might have been taken by an ordinary lab team you know, over decades of, of time. Now, alternately, the AI tools used by AI Assist may have been able to correlate data points that no human would have been able to, at least efficiently, without access and the ability to hold the amount of information the computer can. Now, just keeping it at a high level for a moment, if the AI tools are not widespread at the prior- priority date, then the patent office is going to have to examine obviousness from the point of view of an ordinary skilled person with the usual tools, book reading, manual testing, and the, and the like. And that skilled person is highly unlikely to find the invention obvious because they simply don't have the AI tools that our company, AI Assist, did. In this scenario, AI Assist is ahead of the game, so to speak, potentially having invested materially less in their R&D than companies not using AI and following more typical routes through innovation.
2: Okay, but we can take the same scenario and turn it on its head. So. What if the patent office decided that the ordinary skilled person did have access to AI tools? Then it's not unimaginable that they could conclude that AI assists invention is obvious. Um, The argument would be that any company having access to comparable AI tools will eventually come up with that invention. It could just be a question of computing power. I I think that's how the argument could go. What do you think, Jason? Jason?
1: Well, there is an interesting caveat to that, which is that even if all companies are using the same AI tools, not every company will have access to the same data sets with which to feed into their AI tools. So even if, hypothetically speaking, everyone had exactly the same AI applications, it's unlikely to be the case that every company deploys the same data in the same way.
2: Okay, interesting. So what can we conclude about scenario one? If the obviousness of an invention is assessed from the perspective of the ordinary skilled person and that person doesn't have access to AI, then companies that do use AI or even data sets in a unique way could be raising the bar for innovation. Their efforts with the help of AI compared to the ordinary skilled person's efforts are really likely to be considered innovative. But depending on how AI is developed for use, we could see particular applications of it becoming widespread across a technological field, which could in turn level the playing field. Because, you know, then the question becomes, is the invention arrived at with the help of this market standard AI application, obvious from the perspective of the ordinary skilled person who also had access to the market standard AI application
1: Right. And this might seem a ways off yet, or even an impossibility that the relevant people in the field would have, you know, they all have access to the same AI tools. But if we go back to our discussion on the way in which AI is being developed for use, we can recall that a ways, you know, by specialist AI companies who are then outsourcing that tech to pharma companies. So if the same tools get outsourced and more and more people are approaching innovation with those tools, it's possible that if this trend continues, some of these AI applications become a status quo part of the toolkit of our ordinary skilled person.
2: Okay, but let's not forget what we said about the importance of data sets in this scenario, because this is something we're going to revisit in the second part of the podcast. So we should look at our other scenario, which I think is arguably still a way off in the future. Um, And it's one where we've got our AI autonomously inventing. So let's go back to drug discovery. And what we're talking about is a notional machine that essentially you press a button and it comes up with compounds are ready to take boards for clinical trials. Now, maybe the human did slightly more than press a button. Maybe they had to point the machine in a particular direction, like an area of medicine or treatment. But the point about this scenario is that the human's input is really limited. So uh, we're going to pick another catchy name for our company, Jason. Uh, I'm going to call this one AI Absolute, slightly harder to pronounce. (laughs) And their AI recommends a compound for patenting. So uh, off we go to the patent office. Now, the test for obviousness is the same. But here's where we get into some really interesting territory because the patent office has got to ask itself whether or not AI Absolute's invention would have been obvious to develop from the perspective of, drumroll, a person, i.e. a human. Now, in our scenario, no person could have come up with that invention because it was derived by a machine. So the answer to the obviousness question, I think, has to be no, it's not obvious. And, um, you know, this is great news for AI Absolute in our scenario, because that's going to make obtaining a patent for its inventions really easy. Now, um, let's remember that one of the underlying principles of patent protection is to reward people for their R&D efforts. In our scenario, AI absolute gets the patent for pushing a button on its AI. Whereas other companies that are not as far ahead in their AI efforts, um, you know, companies that are still relying on more traditional and costlier methods of R&D are missing out. So, uh, if, and this is this is really a big if, because I, I have to emphasize that I think we're talking about um you know something that really is still quite far off in the future. But if we get to this stage, um, you know, should there be a place for a new legal standard? Um, that of the ordinary machine skilled in the art. Now I want to pause and say that within the reasonable time limits of a podcast, there are many directions that we can take these scenarios many counter arguments I have to emphasize uh, to the ones that we've put forwards. But I think what this discussion should illustrate is that the legal assessment for obviousness is really human centric, which could raise some tricky issues, assuming that AI becomes more central to the innovative process.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And what's particularly interesting is that we can link this back to the discussion we started with involving inventors. Because there, we also explored how the inventor test is all to do with being human. Again, at its highest level, and unsurprisingly, these legal infrastructures have been wired for humans. We don't yet have means of kind of recognizing AI personalities and the contributions they could make.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think what's really interesting about that is that um, if we go back to the UK IPO's decision on Dabu, um, you know, this is kind of something they touched upon. Um, in other words, you know, this whole question of the place that AI should have in the law is really going to touch on many, many other legal regimes apart from just patent law. Okay, so so those are discussion points. And I think it's fair to say they've definitely limbered us up on the topic. But, you know, sliding now into the second part of our podcast to look at some practical takeaways, because it's all very well talking about the future. But I think the big question is, what about now? So what are the pertinent legal issues to do with the way that AI is being developed and used at present? Jason, I I think we should start with a few thoughts on things to look out for when AI is being developed. So I, I think we should approach this with the following scenario, and that should be representative of what some companies are doing at the moment. So that's where a company has used one or several AI applications in its drug discovery process, and that has resulted in those applications recommending a selection of compounds for the treatment of a disease. I'd like to imagine that the company is looking to patent that output, but who is actually entitled to do that? Jason explained earlier that the entitlement to a patent is derived from the inventor, In other words, it's the inventor or their successors in title who are entitled to the patent, or if that inventor is an employee of a company, it's the company that's entitled to a patent. So at some point in the R&D process for the compounds in our scenario, we need an inventor that satisfies the inventorship criteria in order to work out who is entitled to the patent. And we know that on current laws, it's probably not going to be the AI, but there are other players involved in our R&D process. For example, the humans who designed the AI or selected the data inputs, as well as the scientists who took the AI's proposed compounds to test that they worked. It could be a collection of those people, but together they must satisfy the inventorship criteria. And I have in mind in particular that they must have contributed to the inventive concept of the invention. It's not necessarily going to be enough to say that you've designed an algorithm or selected the data because you know that could have no link to the inventive concept, which in this scenario are the compounds for medical use. So let's assume that we've identified our inventors um, and the compounds And they're actually gonna be the scientists who took the compounds and developed them to show that they actually worked for the target disease. Now, this is important because they're likely to be employees of our company. And so broadly put, the company could be entitled to the patent. But if those scientists are not, then entitlement to the patent could end up in someone else's hands.
1: Yeah, and things could get especially tricky where there has been some sort of joint venture or collaboration. So let's say you're a pharma company looking to collaborate with an AI company. You, the pharma company, have powerful proprietary data, compound libraries, for example. The AI company has the tech to turn that into results. Now, who is lending the contribution to the invention to warrant entitlement to a patent? What if you both contribute data, you and the pharma company, your compound libraries, the AI company, the know-how data sets used to train the AI, and the AI produces an invention? Now, you're going to have to look at that invention and work out whose data lies behind the inventive concept to work out who would be, in the, be deemed as the inventor and who would be entitled to the patent. Now, moving away from patents, you also need to think about how you allocate compensation for successful results of the collaboration and who takes the benefit of training the algorithms. Or kind of look at it another way. Suppose you're the pharma company and your proprietary data has, as a byproduct of this collaboration, trained the algorithms how how would you extract that or reverse that so other companies that subsequently use the AI don't take the benefit of that training or even your proprietary data points?
2: Yeah, and you've touched on another point there, which is the ability to unravel the AI's decision-making. And I'm afraid I'm going to take us back to patents, but another really important requirement for being able to patent an invention is being able to demonstrate to the patent office or even further down the line, if you're having to defend your patent, you know, defending it to a court. And so, you know, being able to demonstrate that the invention actually works is something you might have to do. W- whilst you might think it a foregone conclusion that compounds selected by a superhuman intellect are bound to work, um, how are you going to show that when the AI's rationale is bound up in a highly complex neural network of algorithms? Would the algorithms underlying the AI's thinking be understandable to the relevant people? Then there's the issue of access to that information. Um, Jason's just talked about collaborations, but if the AI is owned by the AI company, are they going to want a pharma company delving into the AI's underlying code and disclosing it to a patent office, uh, a court, or even just other members of the business? Another means of demonstrating plausibility is to take the AI's selected compounds and test them further, whether in vitro or otherwise. It may be that all or some of the compounds identified by the AI can be shown to work and sufficiently disclosed in more recognisable terms, such as through test results or clinical studies as opposed to algorithms. Yet, on this analysis, patentable output is arguably not the group of compounds originally selected by the AI, but rather the compounds only once they've been shown to be effective by a human. To that end, I, I think it's fair to say that humans remain a very important part of the process still. So... Jason, I think that takes us to the end of where we wanted to get to today. Uh, we've had a look at some hypothetical or even quite futuristic models where AI is used in innovation. And we've done that really just to shine a light on you know, how the law could end up you know, interacting with this development. And we've finished the episode by pulling, uh, pulling this together to look at some present-day implementations and legal considerations around that. Jason, I, I'm going to ask you a tricky question. <laughs> what would your takeaway be for the listeners?
1: Well, I, I think it's important to think through many of these issues before investing heavily in AI. You know, how are you going to protect your AI? Can, can it be patented? And if not, then how do you plan to protect it? how will you protect the data that's used for training or inferencing? How will your AI be used and by whom? Will there be any potential liability resulting from the AI that makes these decisions on your behalf? No, we wanna make sure we're not discouraging adoption of the AI as it provides many advantages as we've discussed, but it's also important to think through these types of issues before going all in and making a significant investment in AI.
2: I think that's a really, really good reflection. Um, I I mean, I think I I would agree with all of that. And it's a really yes. And because in all of our discussions on, you know, patenting and AI today, um, and we focused on, you know, quite a few different challenges, inventorship, plausibility, disclosure. And I think what's striking is that across all three issues, the importance of keeping a human in the picture is key. So for inventorship, as matters stand, you're still going to need to be able to you know, pin the AI's work to a human. Plausibility and disclosure, you're still going to have to translate the AI's output into something a human's going to be able to recognize. So, I mean, for me, I think the takeaway that I return to is this idea that whilst the um, rate of advances in AI accelerates, companies should nonetheless keep a close eye on the role a human has to play in innovation. In other words, at least for now, keep the human central. So, I I mean, I thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we'd absolutely love to hear if anyone has any follow-up questions or input. Jason, thanks so much for your input today. I think it's been a really, really great conversation.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thank you as well. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Jason and or Imogen, I'll link the bios in the description below. If you don't want to miss any new episodes and you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We're going to hear each other in about two weeks. So thank you for tuning in. And we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking the cure.